welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Nashville, Tennessee. Last week, we decomposed the body into its constituent organs. This week, we will decompose the body into its most basic elements, earth, water, fire, and wind or air. The elements represent an ancient Indian scheme for analysis of the material world into its basic constituents that has its counterpart also in ancient Greece and elsewhere. It was superseded in modern science by the periodic table, which recognizes more than 100 elements, and then by the recognition of subatomic particles. The Buddha never claimed the elements substantially existed in themselves, nor that they were exhaustive. But one finds that a common effect of the development of the Abhidhamma in the Theravada, as well as in other early schools of Buddhism, is to reify certain key factors as parts of ultimate reality to take them as things that substantially exist. The Abhidhamma is the higher Dharma, the attempt to represent the Dharma in precise and unequivocal terms. Ultimate reality stands in the Abhidhamma in contrast to conventional reality, which, like chariots, bodies, and the self, are products at least in part conditioned by human object conceptualization or cognition. Conventional reality is what we are intent on demonstrating in internal analysis. The body exists substantially only by convention. Your car exists substantially only by convention. Presumably, each of the organs that make up the body exists only by convention. The self exists only by convention. In the Abhidhamma, the elements belong to ultimate physical reality. However, the Buddha does not seem to have recognized a distinction between ultimate and conventional reality at all. That was a product of the later developments within Buddhism. And as far as I can tell, for the Buddha, it is conventional reality all the way down. We cannot disentangle the world from our conceptualizations of the world. Nonetheless, the Buddha used the familiar categories of earth, water, fire, and air specifically for analysis of the body, thereby giving us yet another exercise. Again, because a bhikkhu reviews the same body, however it is placed, however disposed, by way of elements, thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice had killed a cow and was seated at the crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too a reviews 
the same body by way of elements thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. The elements have distinct qualities and dimensions by which we can recognize them. We need to look outside of the Satipatthana Sutta to find this information. The exposition of the Element Sutta tells us not only the recognizable features of the elements, but where we're likely to find them in the body. What, what friends, is the earth, earth element? The earth element may be either internal or external. What is the internal earth element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to, that is, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidney, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is called the internal earth element. What, friends, is the water element? The water element may be either internal or external. What is the internal water element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is water, watery, and clung to, that is, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is water, watery, and clung to. This is called the internal water element. What, friends, is the fire element? The fire element may be either internal or external. What is the internal fire element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to. That is, that by which one is warmed, ages, and is consumed, and that by which what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets completely digested, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to. This is called the internal fire element. What, friends, is the air element? The air element may be either internal or external. What is the internal air element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is air, airy, and clung to, that is, upgoing winds, downgoing winds, winds in the belly, winds in the bowels, winds that course through the limbs, in-breath and out-breath, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is air, airy, and clung to. This is called the internal air element. Clung to here means we identify with it as my earth, my water, my fire, and my air, which is to say 
It is internal to my body, which is myself, which is me. Just to elaborate on the definitions of the elements provided here, it is also said that water is present in cohesion, presumably when other elements cohere, and probably an analogy to the surface tension observed in liquids. Fire is present throughout the temperature scale, the dimension of heat, that is, hot and cold both fall under fire. Notice that fire is present in digestion and aging, clearly in analogy to the consumption of fuel in a real fire. Air is, I believe, present in motion in general. Blood, for instance, courses through the limbs and in this sense includes both water and air. I think we find that individual organs sometimes manifest more than one element. Certainly, all the internal organs in the living human body are relatively hot. I find it useful to examine all of the elements as present in the mouth. An advantage of the mouth is that you can open and close it, move it around, and still remain in your meditation posture. The yogi sitting next to you will be none the wiser. If you open and close your mouth, you become aware of your jaw and teeth. There is earth. Spittle is water, and you can even observe its property of cohesion as it sticks to the sides of your mouth or even seals the space between your tongue and other tissue. It's warm in there. That is heat. As you are exploring the elements in this way, there is motion, and with an open mouth, air passing from and into the lungs can be felt. That's air. The exposition of element sutta adds another dimension to the contemplation of elements that is not found in the Satipatthana Sutta itself. This is a refrain spoken after each of the element definitions that I quoted a couple of minutes ago. Now, both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees it thus as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the earth element and makes the mind dispassionate toward the earth element. This is repeated for the water element, the fire element, and the air element as well. The internal elements are, as before, evidence for the body. The external elements are easily observed in nature, in rocks and babbling brooks, in wind and sunlight. The significance of this, beyond once again deconstructing the presumption of a substantial body and self has to do with the clung to that we mentioned earlier. We cling to our elements, we take them personally 
because we are convinced they are me or mine in a way that we do not cling to a lump of mud at the edge of a river. But internal and external are, in this case, pretty much the same thing. Earth, water, fire, and air, they're the same internally and externally. This observation tends to depersonalize earth, water, fire, and air, and with that, our own bodies. The reason we want to deconstruct the self in the first place is because we take it so personally, and it thereby gets us into a lot of trouble. The elements exercise in the Satipatthana concludes with the refrain on internal analysis that we're already familiar with. In this way, he abides contemplating the body in the body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Or else he abides contemplating in the body its nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing, and so on. This is a good opportunity for observing impermanence, particularly in light of modern science at the level of small particles in general. Consider that over time, every atom or molecule in your body is subject to replacement. Your elements are visitors flowing through, obtained from the external environment and returning to the external environment, during which time a portion of their energy is extracted to maintain motion, cognition, and body heat. And nonetheless, we foolishly presume the body to exist and persists substantially. I want to open another issue. The listener who expects that mindfulness is about being present with physical reality as it presents itself may be somewhat disappointed in the exercises we've encountered so far. If our task is mindful observation of what arises in the body physically, this would seem to require the physical senses, the eye, ear, and so on, that we use to probe into physical reality. Yet only part of what we observe in these exercises is facilitated through the physical senses. Another part is visualized, that is, imagined in the mind, in effect, made up or pieced together through recollection of similar content from the past. Scanning the body for organs or elements is almost entirely visualization as we try to bring our knowledge of human anatomy to bear. Are we observing body or are we actually observing mind? Are we observing what we are making up? Even the breath, of which there is clear evidence through tactile sensations, needs to be visualized as a whole, particularly as we enter deeper concentration and barely detect the physical sensations of the breath, or not detect them at all. We simply visualize the breath. Let me address this question of the extent to which we're observing 
the present moment. What we observe is what arises in our experiential world. That is, we observe only what we are conscious of. We cannot experience something if we're not conscious of it. Therefore, what we observe is always accompanied by mind. Yet, in the case of contemplations of body, we are always conscious of something physical, even if we're only visualizing it. Whether it's really substantial or not, whether it exists out there or is a mirage or an optical illusion, what is intended by our consciousness, even if it makes mistakes, is something physical. We are conscious of something physical, just as a word or phrase like black swan or the tallest mountain in France intends to refer to something physical, whether or not or however it actually manifests in reality. However, consciousness comes in many forms and is facilitated in many ways, through seeing or hearing, through inference, through imagination or visualization, or through presumption, virtually always through a combination of these. Somehow the evidence of the physical senses, eyes, ears, nose, proprioception, and so on, seems particularly strongly grounded physically and particularly reliable. But that physical evidence from the senses is itself very limited. Through the eyes, we become conscious of shapes and colors, essentially pixels arrayed in two dimensions. But we must somehow mentally construct the chariot or the dog before they too enter consciousness or enter into our experiential world. Some things enter consciousness through inference. I hear snoring behind the chair through a physical sense, and I infer that my dog is there, and thereby become conscious of the whole dog that I cannot see. And of course, we presume the substantial existence of certain things, like the body and the self. And so anything we presume enters consciousness and enters our world of experience. It is quite real for the person who does not practice the satipatthana. In short, visualizing something mentally is not so different from seeing something physically. Each results in consciousness of a physical thing. The difference between them is hidden in the nature or conditioning factors of consciousness, the mental factor in each case. But what we see or visualize is entirely physical, whether or not it happens to match up with a objective reality out there. The upshot is that what we visualize or perceive more directly through the physical senses gives us roughly the same novel perspective on our experiential world, whether we are scanning the body through visualization or actually cutting open a corpse and looking at it and touching each body part is not really critical to the success of this exercise. 
In either case, the perspective gained will undercut our presumption of the body as something substantial, relatively permanent, and as belonging to me. Turning our consciousness toward the novel perspective, then supercharging it with the toolbox of Satipatthana factors, stretches consciousness in ways it is not used to, and ultimately changes the way we experience the world. This is the basis of insight. The remaining Satipatthana body exercises involve the contemplation of corpses in varying stages of decomposition. Also, a contemplation that most often in the absence of a genuine physical charnel ground is performed through visualization. It stretches consciousness in yet another dimension and is very effective in changing the way we experience the world. However, before taking up the charnel ground contemplations, I want to take a break for one week in order to revisit internal analysis, in particular to examine the logic and purpose of this technique a little more closely and from a different perspective. This will be the topic of next week's talk.